Good afternoon, everyone. It's nice to see you all. My name is uh, Dinesh. I'm one of the pastors at Grace Point, mostly at Granville. And today I have the privilege of preaching the word here at Burwood. Uh, please keep your Bibles open in Psalm 2. Let me pray before we come to study his word. Gracious and Holy Father, we thank you and uh, we praise you, Lord. We thank you for your mercies, which are new each morning. We thank you for your Son, Lord Jesus Christ, and we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your word and ask that you would, Lord, give wisdom and help us, Lord, not to just be hearers, but also be doers of your word. I pray that you would be, Lord, with me and help me to preach your word faithfully for your glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we live in a world which opposes God. We live in a hostile world uh, where people rage and uh, where people and friends we have who ignore God. And we live in a society which is constantly pushing the boundaries, uh, constantly uh, pushing the moral limits. Uh, we see society where which is uh, bound, which is like... Uh, constantly pushing uh, this and bringing this new definition of marriage. They are trying to redefine what marriage is. They are trying to also redefine uh, gender. And we live in a society where we, even in Sydney, where we have Mardi Gras, where people openly, they uh, rise up against the Lord, against His law, against His commands, and openly uh, parade themselves. And we live in a society which is hell-bound, in opposing everything that has to do with Christianity or with God or with religion. People are trying to define how we wish during Christmas. It's no longer Merry Christmas, it's Happy Holidays. So they want to remove everything that has to do with Christianity, with Christ. And so as we read this psalm, uh, we ask, is this psalm really relevant to us today? As we read this psalm this afternoon, we are looking and uh, we were reflecting on, on the psalmist. So is this psalm relevant? Does it speak to us in our present day and age? And I think the psalm is very up-to-date. It is very contemporary. It speaks to us. It explains to us what Australia is Explains to us this sexual revolution which is going on in our society. Explains to us how people are rising up. How they hate God for nothing. They detest the name of God. I was living in a church property a few years back. And the pastor invited a couple because they lost their jobs. And he invited them to stay in the church man's and he thought that this would be a good idea because they would get exposure to the gospel and they would uh, also be living with Christian people. So there will be opportunity to witness to them. And I was surprised that after one Bible study, they come back and they were raging and ranting and saying, there's no God, there's no God. And I was like, what is really happening? Why, why this hatred? And this psalm here, the psalm is basically is trying to convince that it is foolish and it's futile to oppose, to rise up against this almighty God. 
It's just in vain. And this is one of the royal psalms. This psalm speaks about Christ as the king of kings. This is a psalm which speaks of Christ coming and his fulfilling. We see this psalm in fulfilling Christ in his first coming and in his second coming. And this psalm basically, here has no heading. Normally psalms do have heading, but this psalm does not have any heading. But Peter and John, the disciples, they uh, see that this psalm was written by King David in Acts chapter 4. They say this psalm basically is written by David. And this psalm basically continues uh, with Psalm 1. We looked a couple of weeks back, Psalm 1, where it has this contrast between the righteous person and the wicked person. It speaks of this righteous person who will be like this tree planted along the rivers of water. And Psalm 2, basically, it gives more clarity to who this righteous one is. This righteous one is none other than Christ Jesus, the anointed king, the son of the father. And also the Psalm 1 speaks of the way of the wicked, the way of the sinners. And Psalm 2 basically again expands on this and says the way of the sinner is the one where these people revolt, they rise up against the king. That is the way of the sinner. The sinner rises up against the anointed king. He conspires, he rages. And this Psalm we can easily divide into four divisions as Three verses each, and that's what I've done in the sermon outline. And the first section it is uh, deals with verses one to three. And the psalmist here basically is asking a question: Why do the nations conspire, or why do the nations rage? And the Hebrew word here, conspire or rage, it can mean basically being restless. It's like this waves of the sea which are restless, which keep on. Uh, Coming to the shows, that's how the psalmist is describing. He's saying these nations, they are conspiring, they are raging, they are being restless. And it's not just one nation here. It's not just the nation of Israel, but it is all the nations, basically. It's plural here, nations. So all the nations of this world are basically conspiring. They're raging against, they're rising up against the almighty God. And the people join in this revolt, in this rebellion. And the psalmist is amazed. And he's asking this question, why are these nations rising? Why are they rising up against this almighty God, the creator of heavens and the earth? Why are they plotting? Why are they scheming? He says they plot in vain. They plot... In vain, basically saying that this is useless exercise. It is irrational. It is senseless to rise up against the Almighty God, the creator of heavens. And then look in verse 2. It says, the kings of the earth rise up. So not only the people and the nations, but even the kings are joining in this rebellion. And they are the ones who are leading this rebellion. They are the leaders, basically. So they're leading this. So all these people, the nations and the kings and the political leaders, they're lined up and rebelling against God. It's no different. 
Even today we see politicians, we see people rising up. They're rebelling against God. They want to remove the scripture classes from the schools. They conspire together. They come together. They're scheming together. They even want to remove the Lord's Prayer. You know, the parliament when it sits, they start with the Lord's Prayer. They want to even remove that thing. They have this new term called fluid sex. It can be what you feel. You feel like women, you are women. You feel like men, you are next day men. So we are now forced to ask the person, how do I address you? Are you male or are you female? And that is what the politicians and the people are coming together. The scheming and plotting. But he says, the psalmist says it is futile exercise. It's just madness. The, the rulers, they band together, they take a they come together to take counsel like a round table conference. We watch in the news, the G8 meeting or G7 meeting, the, the leaders of all the nations come together, they have this round table conference, discuss economic situations and political things. But these people are rising up, they're taking counsel, they're coming on this round table conference and the agenda on the table here is that we want to dethrone this king, we want to remove this king from his throne. That is the agenda here. And they're rising up against the anointed. Anointed basically means to set apart. And in the Old Testament, there were three categories of people who were anointed. The prophet, the priest, and the kings. So we know the story of uh, King David. He was so little. And Samuel comes to anoint him. And basically they pour oil on the head. And that is how it signifies that the person has been anointed. To be anointed basically means to be set apart for a specific task. Anointed in Hebrew means Messiah. And anointed in Greek means Christ. That's what Christ means. Jesus Christ, we say Christ means the anointed one. It is not his surname. He is the one who has been set apart, who has been sent by the Father on this earth. And as he comes on this earth, he starts his ministry, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. So he's been sent for a specific task to bring reconciliation between us and God, to bring peace. We have him rebelling against God. And he has come to bring end to this rebellion. He has bring, come to bring a peace between God and us. That was a specific task. And that's why he's called Christ, the anointed. You see, these people are rising up against the anointed. And what is the reason? What is the reason they are rebelling? What is the reason they are coming together? What is the reason that they are taking counsel? He says in verse 3, he says, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Now this is the goal, ultimate goal, to break their chains. And this is a Hebrew, which I think the English does not do the right uh, justification. When we translate 
ancient language into english the psalmist here basically has a picture of a yoke here so yoke is we don't use this word right now but yoke basically is that wooden plank that wooden log which basically is put on two oxen so if you if you go to countryside if you go probably in china or india you see the farming the farmer still use that thing they they get two oxen and put a wooden log on that thing that is the yoke and the purpose of the yoke is to make the two oxen work in harmony in unity always one oxen will be going on the right and the other will go on the left so the purpose of the yoke is to basically unite them to so that they can work in unity and the people who are repelling against god they are saying that this submission to god basically this reign of god this rule of god is like this yoke it is this heavy burden on our necks and they're saying let us break this god's yoke let us shatter it into pieces because they want to be their own gods they don't want to submit to god's rule or his authority and this rebellion is very old this is not new revolt this goes as far as the book of genesis adam our first father he was the one who rebelled against god and he said he challenged god's authority when he ate that fruit and the serpent cunningly comes to deceive eve and that's what the serpent was telling to eve if you eat this apple you'll be like god you will be god you don't need god you don't need to submit to him you can be your own god you can break this shackle you can break this yoke so this revolt goes back to the day of adam and that's why we are all born with the sin of adam we have inherited adam's sin in the heart of this rebellion this sinful nature is that we do not want to submit to his authority we do not want anyone to tell us how to live we do not want anyone to put the law or tell us to walk in obedience to this law at the heart of this rebellion is uh, this heart of sinfulness this is total depravity basically and that's what paul says in the book of romans the carnal mind is enmity with god is not subject to god turn with me to romans 8 romans 8 verse 7 paul is writing here and is basically a saying that the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to god it does not submit to god's law nor can it do so those who are in the realm of flesh cannot please god so we were all born sinners we were all born with this uh, adam sin and we were all rebellious but it is the work of christ the holy spirit working in our lives opening our blind eyes now we come into submission we we recognize 
Jesus as the king in our lives. He's the one who rules and reigns in our life. The people thought God's rule was like this yoke and they wanted to break that, shatter that into pieces. And that's what Jesus says. The light has come into the world but people love darkness because their deeds were evil. The rebellious heart does not want to submit to God's authority, does not want God in their life, does not want the ways of God in their lives. The desire is to be free from all moral restraints. They want to live their lives their own way. They want to marry whomever they want to marry. They want to have their own definition of gender and sex. They want to be the captains of their own life. But what does God do when he faces this revolt, this rebellion? What does God do? Look at verse 4. He says, the anointed, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. So the one who's seated in the heaven, he looks at this rebellion, he looks at the people and he laughs at them. It's not as if they said a joke, but it is basically a mockery, a contempt. The Lord scoffs at them, he mocks at them. The one seated on the throne, he does not even rise up from his throne. He's seated there, he's not bothered, he's not panicking. He does not run hiding somewhere. He's not calling his generals. Say, let us make a strategy. These people have come up. No, he just laughs at them. We know the people who wanted to build a tower to reach to heavens. They thought that let us reach to the heavens. And God just looks at that and laughs at them. He gives them multiple languages and brings confusion. So it's not that we see the revolt happening just now. It's not that the politicians and the people are rebelling. It's been going on from ages. Pharaoh rebelled against God. He didn't permit the people of God to go and worship. And we see of Nebuchadnezzar. And we see of other people who have rebelled against God. The one seated in the heavens, the one enthroned in the heavens, he laughs. This is a wonderful picture actually. If you read the book of Revelation chapter 4, John has been given this vision John is taken into the heavens and as he enters, as he steps into the heaven, the first thing that he sees is this throne of God and the one seated on the throne. As he enters heaven, he does not see the roads of streets of gold. He does not see Adam. He does not see Paul. The vision that is given to John is captured by this throne, this throne room in heaven. 
where the Almighty is sitting on the throne. So this throne is not vacant. This throne is already occupied. There is no democracy in heaven. There is only theocracy. We like democracy. It's good for Australia. We like to choose our own prime ministers and premier. But that does not happen in heaven. People don't get to choose who sits on the throne. It is the almighty God who is seated there. And from heaven he rules and he reigns. He's in complete control. He's the sovereign Lord. Even when people are rebelling against him. And this laughter now turns into anger. In verse 5 he says that he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. So the Lord now turns in anger. And sadly we have this preaching where we hear of God only one who is loving, always loving, never rebuking, never disciplining. But that is not what the scriptures tell us. The Lord is angry not only with sin but also with the sinner. He hates both sin and the sinners. Just flick the next psalm in your book. Go to Psalm 5. In verse 4 it says, For you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. You are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. Says God is holy and with him, evil people are not welcome. And go to the next psalm, Psalm 7. In verse 11 it says, God is a righteous judge. A God who displays his wrath every day against the sinner. So he's at the same time loving and at the same time he is a God who displays his wrath. That is what is distinct. See, we can only be loving, we can't at the same time love and hate a person. It's just not possible. It's only in the movies they show. But not in reality, right? When you look at a person, either you love him or you hate him, either you like him or you dislike him. But with God, it's different. He at the same time can be loving and at the same time can be displaying his anger and wrath against sinners. So God, because he is a God who is holy, he cannot ignore sin, he cannot ignore sinners. So his justice demands that he punish the sinners. The psalmist says that the Lord, he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. And then this is what the Lord does. And the NIV does not capture really the sense of uh, the Hebrew. He says, I have installed my king. And the ESV is a better translation here. He says in ESV, as for me, that is what the Lord is saying, as for me, I have set my king. This is what the God the Almighty is saying, you are rebelling, you are revolting, you are people who are rising up against me. But as for me, I have already installed my king on this heaven and earth. I have already set my king. God has appointed this king. He is a king, Jesus, who is going to rule over the world. 
He's a king who's going to rule over Australia, over all the nations. He's going to rule over the church. He's going to rule over the hell. He's going to rule over your hearts and your minds and your conscience. And to him has been given the judgment. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to this King Jesus. And each of us will stand before him one day and give an account of our life. Nobody is going to escape that judgment day. And it's amazing that in the light of the people conspiring, people scheming and plotting to remove him from the throne, to basically not submit to his authority, the Lord just laughs at them because their attempts are futile. And Isaiah rightly, he explains this beautifully in Isaiah chapter 40. If you just turn there, Isaiah 40. In verse 15, Isaiah says, Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. All the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scale. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. This is how the Lord, the Almighty, sees when he looks at the people, at the nations. They are like a speck of the dust. They are like a drop in the bucket. And they scheme and they rebel against God, against his authority, against his anointed, against his king. And in verse 7 to 9, this is what Jesus basically is speaking here. And this is like the psalm. Psalm 2 is one of the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. The gospel writers quote it. The book of Acts quotes it. Even Revelation quotes it. Jesus Christ, when he writes the seven letters to the seven churches, he quotes Psalm 2. In chapter 19 of Revelation, there's a reference to Psalm 2. It's a very significant psalm. Verse 7, he said to me, that is the father, said to Jesus, you are my son, today I have become your father. Or you are my son, today I have begotten you. So Jesus is referred as son. And uh, this is a title basically. Jesus is not the biological son of the father. This is a title. And if you have conversations with Muslims, this is what they will always bring up. How can Jesus be the son? How can God have a son? But Jesus is actually the, the son, and this son is a title. Because if you read the book of Exodus, it says, uh, the Lord says that Israel is my firstborn son. The nation of Israel, the chosen race, they were called the sons of God. 
So that was a title given to them, and Jesus is Israel in a sense, and he also is given this title. And he says that today I have begotten you. So begotten is a word which normally don't use in our daily conversations. I think only the King James Version uses begotten word, and maybe some of the creeds use this word begotten. Begotten means not created. It's the opposite of created. And begotten basically like begetting is that he came in this world, that Jesus came into this world. That is what begetting is. That he was begotten of the Holy Spirit and, and through the Virgin Mary, Jesus came into this world. So it's not through a biological or sexual union, but this is the work of the Holy Spirit. That's why this word begotten is used. So Jesus was never created. He always existed. It's not as if the Father kind of brings in Jesus, brings Jesus into existence. No, that is not what the scriptures tell us. And that's what Jehovah Witness will try and convince you. That Jesus is a created being, but no. Jesus existed from time, eternity. And that's what John's gospel begins with. John says in John 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was... word was God. The beginning was the word... And the word was with God. So this word is referring to Jesus. We get the clarity in verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. This is talking about Jesus that he was from the very beginning with God the Father. And he says through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that that has been made. So Christ was involved from the very beginning. He was involved even in the creation. Christ is the eternal son. He is co-equal, co-eternal with the father. And because he is the son of the father, he is a legal heir to his kingdom. And to him has been given all the authority. And he says in verse said, I'll make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. And we see this psalm is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. In verse 9 he says that you will break them with the rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. And this will be fulfilled when Christ returns in his second coming. Christ will come as a judge to judge the nations, to judge everyone. And that's when he will rule, he'll come with power and he will basically deal with people, those who do not repent, those who do not accept his rule and reign over their lives, those who do not submit to his authority. So this is the fulfillment which we are waiting for. Psalm 2 is partially fulfilled in Christ already. And is partially to be fulfilled when he comes back again. The early church basically saw 
this psalm fulfilled in Christ, basically in his crucifixion. Go with me to Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, this is what Peter writes. This is what actually Peter is speaking here. This is actually Luke writing the book of Acts. But Peter speaking and saying in verse 25, You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do nations rage and the people plot in vain? So Peter is basically quoting this psalm, Psalm 2 here. And as he quotes this psalm, then in verse 27, he basically expands and gives us more clarity. Who are these people who have conspired, who have plotted? In verse 27 he says, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together. So this is what they have done. Pontius Pilate and Herod the king have come together. They have come to take counsel. They have come to sit on this round table and make a decision. Along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Along with the chief priests, along with the Pharisees, along with the Jews. All have come together on this round table. To conspire against your holy servant Jesus. Whom you anointed. So the early church, the disciples saw the fulfillment of this psalm in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. They saw these people coming together, lining up against Jesus to put him to death. They thought this would solve the problem. They don't have to submit to this king. And we read in the Gospels, when Jesus was presented before Pontius Pilate, the Jews and the nation of Israel, they cried out. And they said, we don't have a king. They said, Caesar is our king. Such a shocking confession. They say there is no king but Caesar. These are the same people. God calls them the chosen race. God calls them the holy nation. They were the people who were in slavery in Egypt. And God brought them out of slavery into the promised land. God showed them his mighty power by taking them through the Red Sea. They witnessed God's mighty works. But then they say there is no king. We have no king but Caesar. They openly confess that they have no king, they have no God. And their king is Caesar, a mortal man, a pagan. Such is a shocking confession. In the last section of the psalm, we see offer of the gospel. Therefore, you kings, be wise. The psalmist is asking the people to be wise, to be warned. He says, serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule. Kiss his son, or he will be angry. Kiss his son, or lest he will be angry. The psalmist basically is here, such a, I think it's amazing. See if you pause for a minute. It's amazing that 
this god almighty should offer this salvation even to those who are rebelling against him that god should send his son jesus to die on the cross even for these people who are conspiring who are plotting rising up against this almighty god the people have two choices here it's like two ways to live either they submit to this king either they, they take refuge in him or they refuse him they take refuge in him the psalmist says they are blessed he says blessed are all who take refuge in him they are happy or blessed that is what is the state of those who submit to this king those who come and kiss this king and make peace with this king they'll be happy and blessed but those who refuse his authority his rule over their lives they'll face this king as a one who comes uh, with this iron rod he comes with this rod of iron and he will dash them to pieces like pottery he basically he'll come to judge and he will judge them and they will perish so if you submit to this king you will have life if you defy and refuse him there's only eternal judgment and punishment reserved the psalm here ends with a blessing he says blessed are all who take refuge in him see most of you know the story of the rich young ruler you have heard it from your childhood you have heard it so many times in your sunday school this young man he was wealthiest person he was very rich it says he had all the wealth and possession in the world and he comes to jesus jesus says to him one thing you lack says give all you have to the poor and follow me in the following verse it's one of the saddest verses in the entire bible he says this man went away sad this man who had all the wealth of the world went away sad it's a paradox right the world tells you that to be happy you have to be wealthy to be happy you have to have good house big house car bank balance that's what will make you happy that this man had everything but still he was sad he was not happy because he did not have jesus he did not have jesus see happy are those who take refuge in him and we have a wonderful savior who says come to me all you who are heavy laden all you are burdened i'll give you rest take my yoke it is easy my burden is light the world is bent on breaking this yoke of god but jesus says my yoke is easy and when you are yoke with jesus like the oxen basically you will find rest because the other partner in that 
yoking is Jesus. He's going to carry all your weight. And hence your yoke will be light. Your burden will be easy. Let me ask you a couple of questions to conclude. Who is the king in your life? Is Jesus the one who rules and reigns over your life? Or is it yourself? Are you the king of your life? Are you the one who seated on the throne of your life? Or is it Christ Jesus? We recite Lord's Prayer alternately here at Grace Point. And we say, your kingdom come, your will be done. But when we say that, is it just lip service? Your will be done, Lord. But internally we are saying, my will be done, not your will. Lord, this is my will, this is my desire. Or we really mean your will be done. The psalmist says, kiss his son lest he be angry. And he says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let me conclude. Let me pray. Gracious and Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you. We thank you for this wonderful psalm and we, Lord, thank you that you, Lord, ask us to be wise. You ask us to come in submission. You ask us to kiss the Son and make peace. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to put away our will, our desires. And, Lord, that we would seek your will in our lives, your kingdom come. And pray that you would help us to take refuge in you and ask that you would, Lord, be with us and restore to us the joy of salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.